Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by veteran Tracy Middleton. Tracy's background as a veterinarian and epidemiologist led her to serve as a public health officer in the Air Force and later as a public health specialist as a civilian. Tracy shares her public health experiences in 2002 in prepping for Operation Enduring Freedom to stateside during the COVID pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Tracy also shares a story the general public doesn't often hear about, what it's like to be involuntarily separated from the military, and redefining yourself and your career out of uniform. Tracy, thank you for joining me today. We were introduced by previous guest and fellow Air Force veteran, Buff Burkle, and I think your military experience is an important one to share because although you had a number of achievements in your career, you also experienced challenges that the general public doesn't often hear about. But before we get to that, share with us where you're from originally and what your experiences were like that led you to the military. Okay, I am originally from Virginia, so born and raised. I spent the first six years in Newport News, Virginia, my father's a naval architect, so he worked for the shipbuilding company down there. We moved to, when I was about six, we moved up to the Washington, D.C. area, and he took a job with uh, defense contractors. So I uh, grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, just 26 miles south of Washington, D.C. So a lot of opportunity, a lot of exposure to the military. My father served in the Navy before, when he, before he went to college, but other than that, not a military family. But being raised in the Washington, D.C. area, there was a lot of exposure to military, military friends, uh, constantly individuals coming in and out. Um, the big ceremonial bands and all of that kind of thing were there. So, I, you know, I always had an interest, but it was not something that I necessarily thought I would have pursued. I did uh, take the ASVAB when I was in high school, <laughs> and I actually auditioned for one of the Army's field bands. And they would have given it to me, but then my ASVAB score was so high, the army started to drool. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college first. And, you know, never really kind of thought about it again until I went to Virginia Tech for my undergrad in animal science. And then I also stayed at Virginia Tech for uh, veterinary school. You know, I still hadn't thought about it, but when I was in veterinary school, there's so many things you can do with a veterinary degree besides animal practice. There's a lot of things people don't know. And one of those is public health. And so when I was in vet school about my junior, senior year, I started to get, you know, there's always job offers and, and lots of stuff they'd put in our mailboxes, you know, opportunities and things like that. And one of the opportunities that was put in my box was joining the Air Force as a public health officer. So as I you know, went through school, I decided that 40 years of, of small animal practice or animal practice was not something I wanted to do. The other unique thing about Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine at that time is because it was a combination of Virginia Tech and University of Maryland is they had a government corporate center. So as part of my veterinary background, I was introduced to all those other things I could do outside of just animal practice. And so I, I kind of looked at the, the Air Force offer as a stepping stone, maybe to like a, a Centers for Disease Control kind of position. I graduated vet school in 1998, and that summer met up with some veterinary public health officers at our annual American Veterinary Medical Association convention 
and met up with some public health officers and got in touch with a professional recruiter and that kind of took off from there. At that time, public health was very undermanned and in the Air Force at that time, the primary public health officers mostly were veterinarians with some masters of public health thrown in as well as well as some public health nurses, but um, got a position and literally went straight from Vet, I graduated vet school in May and was in the Air Force, commissioned into the Air Force that October. I was really excited about it at that time and excited about the opportunity. And my first base was Charleston Air Force Base, so which everybody told me was a great place to go. <laughs> so that's how I ended up. And that's how I kind of ended up in the Air Force. And what kind of work did you do as a public health officer? So um, public health in the Air Force encompasses a lot of different kind of different. It's all preventive medicine. So we have uh, occupational health, we do the food safety, we do um, communicable disease control type stuff. So any kind of anything that involves prevention, the the motto of the veterinary of the public health core is preventing disease, disability and premature death. So that's kind of uh, all we do. So when I went to Charleston, I was the second officer. So back in you know 19, I got there, I guess, in December of 98. And uh, I was there as the second public health officer, which was really fortunate because I had somebody else I could learn from. I came in because I was direct commission as a veterinarian. I came in uh, as a captain. So at that rank, you're expected to know stuff, which I didn't necessarily know at that point. So it was nice to have uh, really good NCOs and uh, an officer to work underneath while I could get my feet under me. But that was my kind of my first thing. And so my job at Charleston really was to learn my job as an officer. And uh, I also spent a lot of time in San Antonio, Texas, because I had to go to the public health school. It was at Brooks Air Force Base, now Brooks City Base in uh, San Antonio, Texas. So I spent my first year, I was three months in Texas. And then um, I went back for several more courses during that first two years at Charleston. When I was there, that was back in 98, 99 with the um, anthrax vaccination program that kept us really busy. And then uh, deployments because we still had Operation Northern and Southern Watch. And Charleston at that time was a C-17 base. So it was a brand new aircraft at that point. We still had 141s, but the 17, everybody wanted to see it. We were the only base with it. So there was a lot of just a heavy ops tempo. And uh, we did a lot of one thing that we do in public health is the deployment medicine piece. So all that preventive medicine, getting uh, folks ready to deploy medically, it's kind of public health is the, is the conduit between the, the base and the med group. I, I think with the day I first entered the base, they were getting ready to deploy about 300 people at one time because we also had Saddam Hussein at that time. So every time he saber rattled or something, we uh, Charleston usually ended up moving uh, a lot of people and cargo. Mm-hmm. That's a heavy deployment base. So when did you end up in Washington State? I ended up going out to Fairchild in um, the summer. I think it was spring of 2001. Oh, wow. That was where I ended up. Uh, that's where the world changed. So mm-hmm. September 11th, I was at Fairchild Air Force Base, three hours behind the East Coast. And that base was is was uh, refuelers at the time. So still AMC, I've pretty much stayed in Air Mobility Command or USAFE most of my career. So I was, you know, really, you know, kind of enjoying that mission. And then uh, the world changed. So, you know, September 11th happened and 
Uh, I remember getting up that morning and we, you know, turning on the television at what, six o'clock in the morning, my time, six or seven, my time, you know, seeing split screen with smoke, smoke rising from the Pentagon and smoke rising from the World Trade Center. And it's like, holy cow, I've got to get to work now. You know, but got to work just in time, I think, to see the first tower come down. All of a sudden we went from a normal operating base where you had your contractors come in and your um, just your daily your, your daily business, all of a sudden it became Delta and lockdown and the world changed after that. And uh, our, our mission sets changed. It, we had to do a whole lot more with less because all of a sudden you couldn't trust anybody anymore. So all the delivery drivers had to be escorted. All of the, they needed extra augmentees at the gates. Uh, you couldn't even get off base just to go um, eat lunch and come back on because the lines were so long. So it was a very, it was a very interesting time. And the, that was where it was like, the first day was shock and awe and trying to hold the flight together as a, as a young officer, still, you know, young, but you know, gaining experience as a leader. But I, I almost got deployed early. I think it was later that year. It was a, a misfire because they wanted just our equipment, not us. Uh, we got ramped up in a weekend ago and then said the flight surgeon called to see if our, we could actually go on the same plane with our equipment and tactical air command the control center said, oh, sorry, we didn't want you. We just wanted your equipment. <laughs> and so I deployed out of Fairchild. I don't remember the exact month. It was it was like January, February timeframe. I went for 90 days to support OEF, OIF from Dushanbe, Tajikistan. Went in there as part of a, we call them global reach laydown teams. And it basically was made up of a flight surgeon, a independent duty medical technician, a bioenvironmental engineer, and then public health. And so a four-man team of us went in to support a tanker airlift control element, a TALSI. We were set up in Tajikistan to basically do a gas and go operation. So planes would fly into mostly pretty much C-17s, would fly from Germany down into uh, Afghanistan, do a hot offload, and then fly right back out and stop in Dushanbe just to get gas. And then they'd head back to Germany that night. So, and there had been no Americans really in this country or in this city ever. So we were just there. <laughs> um, it was it was a very interesting 90 days. <laughs> so I, I have the picture of myself in front of the Kandahar airport bombed out just because we landed in Afghanistan. We landed in um landed in Kandahar for like an hour to get the next flight over to Tajikistan. Uh, so having been one of the first people to deploy over there, you're really fortunate that your deployment wasn't extended like so many people experienced. So you go back home and then where was your next assignment? From there, because of the nature of somebody else who, need, who had been geographically separated from her husband for way too long, to get her back to uh, Spokane, I ended up getting an assignment to Ramstein. So I went to Ramstein and I didn't work in the med group. I actually worked for the 86th contingency response group as there, we had an, what we called an environmental medicine flight, which was basically flight medicine or flight surgeon, public health, bioenvironmental. We had a health physicist too, because it was the easiest place to stick in plus the technicians. So our job was to support the CRD and the, that, that was a, that was the original one. It was General Jumper's uh, brainchild. And it was basically to make a response force that could open an airfield. Uh, they had jump qualified. So we had the security forces. We had 
basically all of the aircraft maintenance, um, uh, heavy machinery type stuff, as well as a, a medical flight that could uh, could go and set up maybe a little bit longer term operations for a humanitarian situation or doing some sort of, you know, it's kind of like an emergency response force. Our job was to be able to go in 12 hours or less. And I enjoyed that a lot. How long were you at Ramstein? I was there for two years. So I was there from, I guess, about 03 to 05. After that, I my timing was just right. So I actually got a um, got sent by the military to the University of South Carolina to work on a master's of science in public health. Worked on a master's of science and specialized in basically epidemiology and biostatistics. And I had always wanted to do that. The military was really never very clear about to be promoted, whether I needed to go back to school and get an extra master's degree on top of my DVM or, or whatnot. So it was nice to be able to compete for this. And like I said, the timing was right because you have to kind of line it up with the D-Rose ended in summer, which allowed me to go straight into school. So, uh, and then from there, of course, you get sent to school. And then the next thing out of that is you either go to Korea or Turkey. So that's how I ended up in Turkey. Unfortunately, I was, my one mistake, as much as I love school, I would be, I would be a career, probably a career student if I could get away with it. But uh, one of my mistakes there was choosing a thesis that was a little bit too, um, shall we say, robust. (laughs) It was a great project. The data just wasn't there in the right amount of time. So I did all of the, I did everything I needed to plus some, but I never completed the thesis for that degree. So I never got, I didn't finish, but the problem was I got deployed. I got sent to Turkey, which is a challenge in and of itself. So I spent two years, the next two years I spent in in Turkey down at um, Inzerlik Air Base in Adana. It's 50 miles from the Syrian border. I met some really, really good people there. And uh, it's a very interesting, very different from any other place I had been visited or otherwise. You go from a student back into full active duty with the public health job and and in a Middle Eastern country. And so what was that like, that jump? That was a real challenge, partly because I literally stepped off the plane and found out that my flight was going to the um, Goal Opportunity Office for an intervention because communication had broken down so badly. So I, I got that news two minutes after landing in Turkey and getting out of customs and, and meeting my boss and my, um, my head flight doc at the same time. My squadron commander's like, do you want to go? And I'm like, do I need to go? And he said, only if you want to. And I'm like, I'll be there. So I literally, the very first 24 hours in Turkey, I watched members of my flight basically rip into each other in a just uh, very heated. So it kind of set, it, it didn't set the tone, but it really challenged my leadership at that point and just trying to not get embroiled in something that really was just a breakdown in communication. The nice thing about Turkey though, is that the population turns over 67% of the base turns over um, every year because of the short tour and the long tour. Uh, I stayed, I ended up extending and staying for two years, which I think was also a mistake, but having that experience, um, especially that first year and trying to keep everybody at least I could come in and lay down the, the lay the slate and try to make it. Let's start from here and build up. But even I made a few mistakes, which made it just you know kind of made it it tougher. But 
you know, in Turkey, everything you're living on an eight block by four block space. So you don't really ever get away from anybody. At the same time, I was really blessed because I had a, um, a local national who speaks English better than I do and probably writes it better than I do, um, who was in my office as my food, pretty much my food safety guy. So the language barrier was never a problem. And also the customs barrier was never a problem because the thing I liked about him was I could ask him any question and he didn't care. <laughs> so I could, I could learn about culture. I could learn about um, what I needed to do or not do. And, and also just going to and doing the, the GSUs and some of the food inspection stuff we needed to do outside the base walls. Uh, it was nice. So nice to have him. So there were, there were many pluses, but it's, it's tough to take a group of people who are split down the middle and put them into a, you know, it's like, Hey guys, we got to come together and be professional and we got to work. And the other challenge with Turkey is they didn't used to do this. They, they really never sent first termers overseas for their very first assignment, but I got a lot of first termers. <laughs> so uh, imagine a, a, a kid who's never been out of, probably never been out of his County in, in Iowa or Kansas or whatever. And then all of a sudden they send them to Turkey Ooh, oh yeah. <laughs> where there's no drug that basically the drinking age is, is non-existent. The it's a very challenge. It's a much more challenging space, but at the same time, it's kind of nice from an officer perspective, the mentorship I got there and the, and the leadership opportunities, but also learning from other line officers uh, as a field grade at that point, because I was a major um, can be really, really beneficial, but there was also just, you know, some challenges. And I think that for me, you know, um, the first year went very well. The second year, I think I just, after a while as a fast burner, I just hit my wall. You know, if you don't do enough to take care of yourself, then you're not going to be able to take care of, I could, I could maintain and I could do, but I wasn't very happy. And the second year there was a very tough, um, a tough period. And I think that from a, you know, a perspective standpoint, you know, that the country itself has some very beautiful aspects, but the architecture sometimes looks very run down. It can be gorgeous on the inside, but the outside is sort of sometimes looks like crumbling, crumbling buildings and um, a lot of just dust and debris and kind of, you know, sad. And I think after a while that kind of, that started to get to me because that was the vision you had outside the gate. And then I had some, uh, I had a couple of issues just because being a woman and being in a Middle Eastern country, women are looked at a little differently. Mm -hmm. And the, um, I had a, a situation where I was, um, the psychologist called it assault because anytime you are touched and you don't want to be touched, uh, it's it my um psychi psychologist friend called it assault but i was in the back of a dolmish one of the vans that they use to transport and you're in this situation where i'm wedged into the back corner and i've got these two kids in front of me making basically lurid gestures at me because i was the only female even though i was with you know friends in my unit who um i adore but even uh, my, my, one of my friends who was sitting next to me couldn't believe what was going on, but I all of a sudden, you know, just feeling very, very trapped because I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't, you know, as it, being in an independent, more independent female, you always think that you can at least 
have a voice and your no means no, but it didn't at that point. And so that really also set a tone in my second year that made it much more difficult to leave the, leave the base, which in Turkey, if you don't get to leave that base every so often, it can be very, very, very confining. That made for a very difficult about six to eight months of just doing my job there. And, and other women have talked about it too. Being in countries like that, you, you get these looks from, especially not so much the older men, I think, but the younger, and they have this vision of um, all American, their, their vision of a, maybe, maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but their vision of American females is what they see on um, YouTube or they see it on the Kardashians or they stay in this. So they kind of expect us all to be kind of like that. And it's like, no, <laughs> we are not. So I, you know, I had other, other friends there and, and sometimes they, they not intentionally, but we had, I did have an incident where one man, I think he was a business owner. He just kind of misjudged more the stereotypical in their mind, the stereotypical female American who's much in their mind, much looser, much, much more sexual, much more, you know, when you look at the stuff that was being played, it's old music videos. So it's like scantily clad women. And there were times that I would leave the base and you felt like you were being undressed with your eyes. And, and when you can't speak, when you can't talk, you can't, when you can't express, then it's, it's can be very, very, you know, a bit traumatizing. And I've had other situations where I've just, you know, even though, and I was touched, I was not, you know, not in a, it was one thing to make gestures of having sex, but it's a whole nother thing when they reach down and grab your ankle and you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything and your no doesn't mean no. Um, so that was a very difficult thing to get through. And even, even later on, every so often I'll have like a, a situation or something where, especially if I, I'm trapped or feel trapped. That did not help with getting the thesis completed. That did not help with this, the stress and the challenges. So I, I know clinically, I think it was a bit of depression in my second year in Turkey. And one of the things that frustrates me, and not all leaders are like this, and I think it's, it's part of being in your, in your zone, in your focus of we've got to get this mission done, because Turkey had some unique missions to it that had to be exercised a lot. And uh, so we tend to, instead of looking at an officer who's always been a, a hard charger and done really well, when they start to slide and we'll do it with NCOs too, or air, nobody goes and looks at past that and goes, what's, what's the problem? Instead we punish, you punish the behavior, the, the progressive discipline. And that's not always the right um, answer. There were quite a few um, individuals at that time, not just me, that had difficulties, especially towards the end. Once you get to that end part in mark, and you you wouldn't expect it of them, that but they just had you know a slide or a setback. But my cause, the cost of mine was not getting that thesis done. Directly led to me not getting picked up for that, and probably um, a medal that I didn't get from Turkey. I got a commendation instead of a meritorious service, which didn't help my my um, meeting the board in the zone for lieutenant colonel. I had a definitely promote. I had a DP going in under the zone, but they wouldn't take. They don't do under the zone for major to lieutenant colonel. So you it's either in the zone or above the zone at that time. So I and I knew I wasn't going to get picked up for um, lieutenant colonel, but I went from Turkey to the School of Aerospace Medicine back where um, it was at Brooks 
city-based at that point. So that's where we train pretty much. It's this primary school for uh, flight surgeons, bioenvironmental engineering, public health was down there. So my job, I went and became a public health instructor, which was a lot of fun. The fun part was the instructing. The, the hard part was at that point in the, I spent a year in San Antonio closing the school at the schoolhouse at Brooks and moving it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, when I was in there, that's when um, I came into the zone for Lieutenant Colonel and I didn't make it, which I knew I wasn't going to. And I was fine with that. Uh, I figured because I had signed a retention bonus and we were always short in public health, it didn't even dawn on me that they would invoke the law that says if you've been passed over twice, that you are, that you're eligible for um, walking papers. We were already over in officers across the Air Force. So um, there was cuts coming. The list came out. I wasn't on it for Lieutenant Colonel, no surprise. And two days later, my boss calls me into his office and says, hey, you've got a separation date. Out of the blue, no warning, no nothing. And they had even sat on it for a couple days because they're like, this can't be right. It literally was a personnel decision because the Surgeon General of the Air Force wasn't told they were going to do this to this particular board. And I was, in, I was in the biomedical science core. So when you look at officers in the medical group, you have the doctors, you have the dentists, you have the nurses, and you have the MSCs, the basically the medical service core. And then you have the biomedical science core. Well, the biomedical science core has all those other paraprofessional organizations that support the doctors, nurses, and dentists. So psychologists, the uh, pharmacists, the uh, physical therapists, all of those are in one board. So when the Air Force personnel side decided to cut that board, it cut a lot of people that make up, kind of make up the heart and soul of the med group, stuff that we needed at that time, mental health, physical health. So I know the Surgeon General was ticked a lot and they tried to go line by line and say, okay, can we keep this person and let this person go and it by law they couldn't do it so the deed was done and um i was separated six months later you know that we lost a lot of good people in that board and it wasn't just medical they were doing it across the air force because there were people getting their pink slips while they were still deployed it was a crazy year i don't think i don't think they'll hopefully then we'll never do it again for me anyway it was like going it was like being kicked off america's team because the, the military is so um, revered by all the people who haven't served. They're so revered that you're placed on a pedestal. And so you really, you literally feel like you've been kicked off America's team. I remember when things like this would happen. And when I talk to people about it, they're like, no, a volunteer military would never do that to people who want to continue to serve. And it's like, the military doesn't automatically mean that you are guaranteed to retire, unfortunately, things happen and they let really qualified, great people go who otherwise would stay in. And six months is such a short Just time. Six months. See ya. Bye. You know, <laughs> it's it. And, and then to add insult to injury, 30 days before I was to separate, because I stayed till the very last, sold back my leave. 30 days before I was sep to separate, I got a, uh, a message from DFAS that said, hey, you have to return your retention bonus. No. You have to send back oh your $25,000 retention bonus. 
And I was like, that just, that just really was a kick in the guts. Public health had always been so short, man. That was the first time we'd ever gotten a retention bonus. So it's like you Air Force broke the contract. But of course, they would turn it around and say, hey, you didn't get promoted. So you broke the contract. But I've thankfully, because I was at the schoolhouse, I had contacts in um, personnel because we did for the officers and things, you brought in all kinds of guest speakers and pieces like that. So I had somebody at least at the Pentagon level, I could reach out to and say, Hey, what, what does this mean? And it wasn't just me. So there was a, I don't know how, how they did it, but they did it. They managed to get the, whatever needed to be signed, signed to say that, Hey, we were part of a riff, not part of just your average. You got passed over twice we're going to go ahead and separate you but to actually say we were part of a reduction in force movement, which allowed me to keep the, the retention bonus, but it screwed up my pay for a long, my final pay for a long time. I thought I, I never thought I would have to use a congr- I always hated answering congressionals, but it took a congressional just to get my pay finally sorted out and squared away. On the one hand, it's good that it happened because I needed to separate. I needed to be, I was in it for 20, but I, I think I needed to separate. And so my very first words to my, my supervisor when he told me was, this is not necessarily a bad thing. And sometimes I still have trouble with retirements and uh, other pieces. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things that doesn't get, you're right, it doesn't get told very often. There's, it's, it can be a tough separation when you're not even warned you're going to be separated and um, you start to really feel like that cog in a machine instead of a person. I had gone through my entire career and it still makes me troubled when I hear somebody say the Air Force will always take care of you. But when you separate, you're especially this way. And even in retirement, I've seen the struggle that some retirees have gone through because once you're done, they're done. <laughs> But, you know, it was it was particularly hard because there's no thank you. There's no um, thank you from a grateful nation, whatever. There's just nothing. But it took me a good year to just transition and feel comfortable transitioning from the Air Force back into a. And that's why I made the decision to go to Ohio State and get my finish up my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Before we jump into that, can you share a bit about what that year was like? Uh, the unexpected transition into civilian life, because when that happened, you had been in for 13 years at that point. Yeah, it was 12 years, nine months. So I just kind of round it. Mm-hmm. And in, in starting over and redefining yourself and your career, how did you manage your mental health? What did you do for self-care? That one, you know, a lot of it was just taking the break and actually going to school full time and taking that GI Bill, taking that time and um, you know, being around, you know, kind of being a full-time student, I think was a very helpful piece of that. The other thing is I found, um, I started horseback riding, uh, through a mutual friend and, um, that just being on the farm with a bunch of animals and horses and being able to ride and having somebody, somebody I could talk to without, you know, or, or to be around and just learn how to play again instead of being that intense driven officer having to take care of everybody it was nice to just kind of focus on self-care I'd already kind of been working on on um, more of my mental health and self-care when I had gotten out of Turkey 
um, I had a very, was very fortunate to have a friend there who started me on a path of just changing mental mindsets and, and taking should and supposed to out of my vocabulary so that I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to live up to this. And so I'd already kind of started that transition. And I think that's where um, being able to focus on school, um, being to focus, be able to focus on other, other pursuits and not having to wear a hat every day, being able to choose color again, you know, it's like, you know, you know, being able to choose colors to wear, you know, it's, it's so it was fun, but um, yeah, mostly a lot of it had to do with horses and just, you know, learning how to play again. And you kind of go through your, your back and forth of um, anger versus it's, it's a mourning period. It, it it's just uh, you have to go past get, and sometimes it takes some days it was a struggle and other days it's like you could I, the sun was shining and as well as a lot of alone time and self-care and just just doing what I wanted to do or or, or taking care of that. But it, it did. It really kind of took about a year just to get used to being a civilian after pretty much being married to the Air Force is kind of how I describe it. It was the Air Force was a bad divorce. <laughs> it, it's almost to me, it's a similar. I've never been married or divorced, but it's kind of a similar thing. You've got this 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 entity that has taken up at you, all of your waking moment because you're never really off duty, even if you're on leave, you're never really off duty, and uh, having to to kind of go and find find it my own find my own way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I love that horses helped you through and the connection there with your veterinarian background, whether you were conscious of that or not. Uh, so you completed your master's degree at Ohio State. And what were your next steps? About the time I was graduating and starting to look for a job, um, one of my prior senior leaders had gotten the job at Scott Air Force Base as uh, a civilian public health officer in the flight. So when she retired, I went ahead and applied for it and, and got into it because I still had lots of friends and connections and, and things like that. So it was an easy fit to go back to doing exactly what I did for the Air Force, but just doing it as a civilian. It's been an interesting challenge and um, it, a lot does depend on on leadership you have at the time. And right now, um, it's been I've been very fortunate to have the leadership we do have. Uh, at Scott, because it has made my job a whole lot easier. <laughs> right. Well, with making your job, quote unquote, a whole lot easier, uh, because you're working in public health, and as we've all experienced in the past 14-ish months, this pandemic has hit the U.S., I'm glad to hear you say you had strong leadership. And I'm curious, with your public health background prior to March 2020, say November, December 2019, well, then a lot of the U.S. was in oblivion and this outbreak was happening in China. Were you and your team already setting disaster plans in place, both on the military side and the civilian side, since you work on an Air Force base? To answer your first question, yes, I was watching it. You know, kind of about that December time frame, you, you start to see it and you start to see the concern and the world concern. I wasn't really you know, too stressed about it, as long as it stayed kind of confined to China and Asia. But, you know, it it was kind of handwriting on the wall because we're so interconnected with air travel and you can't close borders the way sometimes you wish you could and disease knows no borders. But I had already been watching it probably that November, December timeframe. 
and um, not necessarily getting things into place because we did a lot of planning and work after H1N1. So there was already kind of the pandemic plans in place. And at that point, first there was the flu planning because it's all kind of based on flu, but we all had what's called a disease containment plan, which followed both bioweaponry, but also diseases like, you know, flu being the big kind of planning factor, the easiest one to plan around, but uh, had already been looking at it. What really set, I think, my base up for success in it and being ready for it was in November, we did a tabletop exercise with uh, flu, influenza, and had kind of walked through our disease pandemic plan, our disease containment plan, and actually was able to incorporate the local health department as well. One of the things that's really helpful now as a civilian is I actually have the time and the continuities to get to know people in the local community so that you're not just, you know, cause no base is independent. We live, work and play in, in communities. So we had had that and we kind of gone through it in a tabletop fashion. So when I started to watch things in December, you know, we already had kind of that planning in place for the public health flight. It really started January, February because um, DOD especially said they wanted to bring back anybody who was TDY or even on leisure travel. So we had a few families who had done some leisure travel in China and had some personnel to get back and having to quarantine them and, and things like that. So we kind of went through it in microcosm. One of the frustrating things about America, but also um, public health, is we do a lot of planning, but if nothing happens, money gets taken back. So when something like this pandemic happens, you have all these great plans, but you have no resources or the money to do what you know needs to be done to do, you know, disease containment or to try and respond to it. So uh, it was kind of one of those, you know, frustrating things is we've got to start throwing resources at it. So I know all the plans and stuff were already out there, you know, in public health, especially we prep for it, but you don't even really realize that this whole framework is here until somebody needs us. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, that's true for so many response teams, but we're grateful when it comes together. The one nice thing about being within the military public health system is that we have a little bit more, you have more control and can make, because you've got lines and chains of command and you have mission to protect and you have all these other factors so that you can, you can come in and start executing plans, but you still have to do a lot of educating, a lot of Um, convincing a lot of going to stakeholders and making, getting them to buy in, especially in the beginning when nobody really knows what they're going to do or what we're supposed to do. We already had that at Scott Air Force Base, and we already kind of had had those conversations just around a different disease. So when things hit in March, it was kind of frustrating because a lot of stuff happened north of us or on the East Coast, and it was really quite quiet. But all of those people, because they'd already started having those discussions, and then we have leadership that's on board and is fully engaged, then you can start putting those things. It's much easier to get things put into place than necessarily out on the county side. The The biggest frustration I think I had with COVID and still do to this day, and I think is the is that politics became it became very 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 political mm-hmm. so things that needed to be done in the beginning weren't necessarily executed or thought about or dismissed by politicians 
And then you have this, you know, in, in the United States, every state's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and public health, what a lot of people don't realize is public, there's public health law, which allows, which is what allows kind of the governors to do what they've done. When you declare a public health emergency, it opens up specific powers. But, you know, in comes to the CDC's role or even my role as a public health officer, what I do is make recommendations. I take the information I have, I make a recommendation, you know, and it's like, if you want to go with it, you can go with it. If you don't want to go with it, you don't have to. And I think that's what a lot of people, especially in the United States, have had to deal with. Whereas when you look at Asia or, you know, South Korea or Japan or even China, the population is very different. It's very regimented. You can close borders much more easily. And so a lot of what I did and have done in the past, especially with public health, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of trying to fight fear because um, the other thing that it, that really is kind of frustrating with this one, as opposed to say H1N1 is the 24 hour news cycle. So this 24 hour news cycle of doom and gloom and numbers on cases and what gets lost in there is who was actually doing who who the majority of the cases were who the majority of the cases of the mortality was happening in and and everybody's so afraid and so ramped up on that and then you throw a presidential election on top of that it's not about news anymore it's about ratings so it's like fighting fear <laughs> all along the way but at the same time, it, you know, try, balancing the mission, balancing the health and safety of the populace and, and also trying to, to not ever make 100 percent commitment to anything because nothing's 100 percent. But you're always kind of fighting these multiple messages. And then there's the, from the extreme of it's not really real to the to the other side where you have people who are still to this day cooped up in their houses because they're afraid to leave. And like I said, I, I feel very fortunate to have had the leadership I have because they could see all of those pieces and listen to what I would, you know, my expertise as the public health emergency officer, but also everybody else within the med group. We have, you know, from vaccine to to PrevMed to um, just the public health flight doing contact tracing and um, managing cases. So it's been a it's been an interesting year. It's been a really fulfilling year. And I feel like I haven't been as close to some people as I have since being deployed, because we basically in March, we stood up a team of people and that became our emergency operations center led by the mission support group, uh, vice commander, and, you know, just a group of people who've been managing, managing the problems, basically just doing problem solving on a daily basis. In your opinion, what do you see the next six months looking like as we work our way through this pandemic? You know, really what it comes down to, I think, and I, I agree with them, um, you know, the CDC, I think what we really need to do is to get the vaccine out because it's under the emergency use authorization. You can't make it mandatory. All we can do is say, Hey, it's highly recommended, but um, I think we have a good vaccine here and it does, it's preventing, um, it's preventing death in the, in the one population group that is the greatest risk. In this pandemic, 80% of the deaths have been, in this state, have been in the 65 and older. And it goes, you know, you can see the, the mortality curve goes up dramatically when you start getting to 70 and up. Um, they may only be about 15% of your cases, but they're 80% of the deaths. That group, I think, should have been protected from the very beginning 
if I was queen, I would have done things a little differently. So the vaccine is is getting out and really strong in that group. But I think to get things back to a place where everyone who's in the decision-making fields is going to be comfortable with, um, it's about getting that vaccine out. But the demand for the vaccine was really, really good in the beginning, but now it's, it's declining and um, mostly in the younger population. And so the next six months is going to be a lot, still needs to be a lot of risk communication and getting the word out. I hope we're going to see more gradual reopening and, and just reopening and getting back together because I think that especially getting the kids back in school, I think that's, that's really important. Um, that's one of been one of my big concerns because of the at-risk kids, the ones that, you know, you can't ask a child to sit in front of a computer for six hours a day and not everybody learns like that. So if you need a classroom structure or you're um, an at-risk child or you don't have that access to computers and internet as much as somebody else and you don't have that help necessarily at home, it, it, it makes it, it's going to make it very difficult. So I think getting, um, as we move forward, it's going to be getting those kids back into school, getting that structure back in, getting the, the um, I think for the collective mental health of the country, getting back to being not connected to computers versus seeing each other. And I know that um, especially for seniors, it's taken a real, a real um, really difficult when you can't even see your family members and you can't, you hug them plastic. So I think that some of that, some of, some of our, I think sometimes the pendulum swung way too far onto the, on the prevention side. Some of it was necessary, but I think it's swung way too far and it needs to swing back a little bit. And I think that's where the vaccine is going to help us. So my final question, the question I end every episode with is if a young woman were to tell you she's thinking about joining the military today, what would you say to her? It depends. <laughs> I think, you know, if it's, for a, for a younger woman who's like, she's coming out of high school, doesn't necessarily know what they want to do and, 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 you know, is looking for kind of a start or maybe wants to get out of a certain situation or I guess my thing is, is, is I have no problem with the military at all, but I think that you need to go in it with op- eyes open. And for some, it might be that right start that they need. Um, maybe before college, you don't really know what you want to do. It's, it's not, a, it's a good way. It's not a bad start, especially if you're already, you know, kind of um, bent and sort of a self-starter yourself. But if for an older one, if a, if a veterinarian were to ask me, then I would have to say, um, definitely it depends and then have a talk about what exactly you would be doing. And, you know, having that plan, having a five or 10 year plan, because you're not necessarily going to have a full 20 or you're, having a specific direction um, you want to go. I said, you know, originally I looked at it as a stepping stone for the CDC, but after you get to about that 10 year point, you've got to start looking at, okay, where's this going to take me? Because the higher you go, the more administrative it becomes and the less public health you do. So to me, it's, it, it is still a good, it's, it's definitely a good start. And I wouldn't change going into the military. I wouldn't change what I did because the one thing it does really, really do is if you're open to it, is it completely opens your perspective for all kinds of different people and places and the world is bigger than your own backyard kind of thing. But I think you definitely have, I would want to know why, and I would want to know, do you have a plan? 
And even if you don't have a plan, it's not a bad thing. You know, a four-year tour or a six-year tour is not is not a bad way to go because especially if you're young and you've you really don't have a direction yet, or you're not necessarily college material or trade school material, there's nothing wrong with starting starting in the military. But there's, you know, the, every every decision is going to also have its cost. Would I talk to a young woman about that cost? Probably not. But as they get older, if it's more professional, then and I would have a serious discussion like was had with me. It's, you know, coming in as a veterinarian in public health, you're not going to do animal work. Are you okay with that? Was one of the questions I was asked. And um, depending, uh, especially for a professional, I would I would be asking something like that. But you know, that it's a, it's a hard question. I spent more time thinking about that question than anything else. <laughs> Honestly, because I'm like, you know, it's, it, it is, it literally, it depends. I know, I know. And I really debate on if I'm even going to ask that question moving forward. Just the more I speak with women from uh, different generations of the military, uh, I know it's a very personal question. You know, the military has evolved and things have changed. Uh, resources are different. It's just such a different military now that it brings up a lot of questions. So um, thank you for, for answering that. And uh, I, I would say the same thing to a young woman. I would just say really be very clear about why you're going in, what options are available, check out the different branches. It would have to be very specific. Um, I went in because I'm an Army brat and I kind of knew what I was getting into. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear everybody's answers to that question. Uh, Tracy, thank you again so much for sharing your time with me today. It's nice to tell the story. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.